Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, May 6th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Disney has revealed the extent of the financial damage from coronavirus closures. And as the U.S. meat supply chain struggles with coronavirus, Beyond Meat is getting ready to offer shoppers a competitively priced alternative. Meanwhile, a ruling out of Germany's constitutional court could weaken Europe's monetary policy response to the crisis. And the FT's global business columnist, Rana Faruhar, argues that economists might need to abandon their traditional way of thinking to deal with the pandemic. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. There are few companies that are more vulnerable to the effects of this pandemic than Disney. It's relied on its theme parks, cruise ships, and blockbuster movies to deliver strong returns in recent years. But no one is hopping on rides like It's a Small World when parks are closed. And in many places around the world, you couldn't buy a movie ticket even if you wanted to. Yesterday, the world's largest entertainment company reported that the pandemic wiped as much as $1.4 billion from its quarterly operating profit. That's before taking into account essential items such as interest and tax. Disney's taken a few steps to shore up its cash position in the past few months. For one, it signed about $13 billion in new credit facilities. But for another measure, it's taken some heat. It furloughed 100,000 employees last month. And yesterday, the House of Mao said it would forego its semi-annual dividend payment worth about $1.6 billion. It's also scrapping guidance for the rest of the year, joining a long line of companies that have done the same. But there was one bright spot in the company's earnings yesterday. Disney Plus, its new streaming service, had signed up 54.5 million subscribers as of Monday. Executives had initially predicted it would take four years to hit 60 million. Now, it was a completely different story for Beyond Meat, which also released quarterly earnings yesterday. The plant-based meat company reported a staggering 141% rise in first quarter revenues from the same period last year, just shy of $100 million, and a net income of nearly $2 million compared with a loss of about $76.5 million in early 2019. Beyond Meat said it had a significant boost in retail sales in the quarter, which helped offset closures at restaurants that served its products. And trouble in the U.S. real meat supply chain could be a boon for the company. In the past, some shoppers had been put off by the high price of Beyond Meat's products. But with meat processing closures across the United States, wholesale meat prices have jumped, essentially knocking down that price barrier. That opportunity aside, Beyond Meat remains cautious in the short term and withdrew its earnings guidance for 2020. Shares in Beyond Meat rose 5% in after-hours trading on Tuesday to nearly $106 each. Back in 2015, nearly 2,000 people, led by economists and law professors, brought a case before Germany's highest court. They argue that the European Central Bank's sovereign bond-buying plan, or quantitative easing, was straying into monetary financing of governments, something that's illegal under the EU treaty. Now, yesterday, Germany's constitutional court came out with a ruling about the flagship bond-buying program, a ruling that could potentially weaken Europe's monetary policy response to the current crisis. The FT's Martin Arnold explains. What it did say was that the ECB hadn't properly assessed whether its monetary policy objectives were sufficiently balanced against the side effects of its policies and the impact on 
economic and fiscal policies. What it has said is that the Bundesbank, the German central bank, will be banned from buying any German government bonds in three months' time, unless in that time the ECB can do a proper assessment and explanation of why its sovereign bond purchases serve monetary policy and do not overly impinge on areas of economic and fiscal policy, which are the domain of national countries rather than ECB. And Martin, we should probably point out that that this case was referred to the European Court of Justice, which ruled in favor of the ECB in 2018, but it then went back to the German Constitutional Court. And it's really not often that a a national court refuses to accept a ruling from the highest court for the entire EU, which makes me wonder, you know, what does this mean for the current ECB monetary stimulus? While the court did not rule on the 750 billion euro pandemic bond buying program, um, the plaintiffs are expected to to consider whether to bring up fresh case. It's a really interesting question, and, and a lot of legal experts have been scratching their heads. I think to sum up, the consensus is that the ECB's quantitative easing, their bond-buying program, will almost certainly be allowed to continue, and the Bundesbank is not probably not going to be blocked from buying German bonds. And if that happens, that really is a a pretty serious crisis. But most people don't think it will happen. They think the ECB can pretty easily come up with a very solid assessment and explanation as to why its purchases are proportionate. The bigger impact here on the ECB, at least, is that this is going to give them pause for thought in terms of making them much more nervous about any further expansion of their monetary policy as they try to combat the severe economic and financial impact of the coronavirus crisis. And they're going to think twice, potentially, about expanding massively their monetary policy platform and objectives when they're thinking, well, if we do that, we might be opening ourselves up to another, perhaps more serious legal challenge in in Germany. Several towns and cities across Europe and the United States are slowly starting to emerge from lockdown. It's part of the phased reopening efforts many countries are implementing. Governments are looking to bring back some economic activity, all the while trying to contain the pandemic. But could the way economists calculate the benefit from the relaxed restrictions need rethinking? In her latest column for the FT, Rana Faruhar argues that mainstream economists have to abandon their traditional models when it comes to dealing with this pandemic. The idea is that in economics, countries, companies, markets, individuals, everybody may sort of, you know, go off track at some point, but that they will eventually reset to a normal equilibrium. The idea is that systems have a balance, all market systems, and that they will revert to normal. And I put that in quotation marks. That's what mainstream economics has told us and taught us for decades now. And it's the same kind of thinking that would say, you know what, outsource your supply chain to the cheapest place. That's great. That's what's most efficient. What could go wrong? You know, and then you come to a pandemic and you say, gosh, there's lots of things that can go Mm -hmm. wrong. But the economics profession, as it is classically practiced, doesn't really think about the sort of exponential effects of systems and how they interact with each other. Right. And in fact, you talk about in your column, one of the, the simple things that economists kind of glom to, which is measuring things in efficiency 
And Mm -hmm. instead, you say, well, what about something a little bit more complex, resiliency, which is harder to measure? Absolutely. Um, is something I've been thinking a lot about. Supply chains, perfect example of this. We've been focused for 40, 50 years on efficiency. Put jobs and goods where they're cheapest. You know, marshal your capital. Don't worry about labor. Don't worry about politics. Don't worry about pandemics. But unfortunately, those black swan events are becoming more and more common as the world becomes more complex. And so you do have to think about them. That's why a lot of businesses, I think, are going to be moving from an efficiency model to a resiliency model. Resiliency, though, has its challenges too. I mean, efficiency is very easy to understand. It's basically about profit maximization and keeping costs low. Resiliency can mean a lot of different things to different people. It can mean different things in different places. Let's just take an economy like the US, big single language economy. We have food, fuel, consumer demand. It might be possible to create more localized supply chains in a way that is resilient. But if you're, say, a smaller country that doesn't have that kind of ecosystem, then resiliency may be more about trade alliances with bigger partners or geopolitics. You know, it's complicated. It's heterodox. And that's what makes it both rich but difficult. So, Rana, who, if anyone, is implementing this kind of thinking that you're suggesting here? Yeah, you know, there are essentially three groups of economists out there. The very old line thinkers that are still kind of working in a neoliberal mentality, those that are reformers, you know, folks like Joe Stiglitz, some that are in the behavioral economics field, but then there are some really outside the box collaborations going on. And there are a couple of bodies that are interested in that, in bringing together these groups that I've been talking about. One is the OECD unit called the New Approaches to Economic Challenges. And they were set up in the wake of the financial crisis to study how to do better policymaking within complex systems. They have folks like Andy Haldane. They've also got supply chain experts, engineers involved. And then there's the Institute for New Economic Thinking itself, which has some sort of old line economists that are attached to it, people that are open to new ideas, but also some very edgy young academics who are trying to think through these things. So there definitely is kind of a a burgeoning movement towards collaboration of the kind that I think is so essential. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.